Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this week we will have part one of my interview with Danny O'Brien from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Danny was on the show a little over a year ago, and uh, he recently wrote an article that caught my attention about something that happened in Europe that will probably affect the entire planet. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. The European Court of Justice came down with a ruling that basically said, in a nutshell, uh, you can't protect our citizens' data outside the EU because U.S. mass surveillance is so prevalent that your privacy promises effectively mean nothing. Uh, it's very interesting, and there's a lot of interesting background to the case, too. In particular, the the guy that uh, kind of started this whole thing, a guy named Max Schrems, who uh, I had not heard of until uh, this interview, but it's really a fascinating backstory. So in, the, in today, part one, we're going to kind of lay the groundwork for that. We're going to talk a little bit about how we got where we are and kind of how the EU and the um, and the United States developed their privacy policies and kind of demeanor uh, in parallel uh, over the last several decades and then you know 9-11 came and all the data mining started happening and all that kind of all came to a head about five years ago so we will start to, with that today uh, before i get to that just real quick i wanted to note that this is the time of year when the big hacker conferences occur and of course there's little hacker conferences and not so little ones uh, around the world and you know they've all gone virtual now including the ones i'm about to mention but uh, these are kind of the biggies. These are the ones that usually have a lot, you know, like all the researchers and hackers save up their best stuff for these two conferences that happened kind of overlapping. In, usually they were usually in Las Vegas. And I was actually planning to go this year for my first time to DEF CON. I was really, really looking forward to that. And of course, uh, with all the COVID stuff going down, it just didn't happen. But the other one you may have heard of was called Black Hat. And, uh, with the idea of the kind of the old black hat, white hat hackers, where the old kind of cowboy, you know, mythos of the the bad cowboys always wear black suits and black hats, and the white and the the guys with the white you know outfits, the pristine you know white outfits and hats were the good guys, you know, way back when. So that that terminology kind of came into the whole hacker world with white hat, black hat, and I don't know why actually they call it black hat. This is not it's not like it's the black hat conference is actually a lot more corporate, um, and the one I really wanted to go to is the much much more hacker friendly one uh, called DefCon. Anyway, th those happened, and we're already seeing lots of big time stories come out of that. So uh, when these interviews are over, I will definitely be walking through some of the things that came out of those two conferences. But now let's get to the first part of my interview with Danny O'Brien from the EFF about the Max Schrems cases. Danny O'Brien is the director of strategy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Before that, he worked as the organization's international director. And before that, he worked at the Committee to Protect Journalists, co-founded the UK's Open Rights Group, and even coined the term Life Hacks. Welcome back to the show, Danny. <laughs> it's great to be back. Uh, so I just ran across an article you wrote recently titled EU court again rules that NSA spying makes U.S. companies inadequate for privacy, unquote, uh, which immediately begs several questions, which is exactly why we're here today. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we will get into that. Um, but before we do, let, let, let's start with some basics. And, you know, I know we've covered some of these things with other people, but just to keep the audience up to date, let's start with what do you do with EFF and what, what is your kind of background in privacy? 
Okay, so I've been I've been at the FF for rather a long time now. Um, I was originally, as you can probably tell from the accent, um, based in the UK. And in the 90s, I think a lot of the big fights in the UK were about attempts to prohibit encryption. But also around about then was the first wave of uh, really EU-wide privacy legislation. Although I think that... The, the, and we can maybe go into this later, there's a slight difference between privacy laws and what the uh, the framework that the EU uses, which is data protection law. Mm-hmm. Um, I came over to California in the 2000s, joined EFF in around about 2005, which was just before we started doing at EFF the big prosecutions around the NSA mm-hmm. um, surveillance in the United States. And I think... Uh, Ever since that time, those two things have been on this sort of collision course. Both the, the 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 information people have been gradually extracting about uh, U.S. mass surveillance programs, and the growing strength and a force behind European data protection law. So, and this is a very fundamental question, but and I always like to hear other people's response to this. So. What do you feel? Why is why is privacy important? Both both personally, which I think most people kind of think of it as a personal thing, but also collectively. Like, why does it why does it matter? Right, right. Well, it's it's sort of funny. I mean, I think that you know, you you we can talk a little bit about how it's embedded in human rights as a matter of course, but as you say, that's somewhat like just assuming that it's a thing that everyone should should have and sometimes it's useful to go back and and you know challenge those assumptions Mm -hmm. a little bit or you know respond when they are challenged by other people um because my background is in digital rights and thinking about how technology affects society i actually push it a little a little bit in a different way which is that we kind of need a part of our lives where we make decisions about what we do, right? We kind of need some space to think for ourselves, try out new ideas, share those new ideas, uh, have confidences, uh, and, you know, basically the freedom to develop your own personality mm-hmm. um, and have your own relationships. One of the great things about new technology is that I think it's really increased our ability to communicate and share knowledge but it's also sort of slowly restricted that area where we can have that 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 Mm. private world and i think that's one of the reasons why over time recently privacy has gone from something that's kind of just in the background of human rights it's as people famously say you know it's implied but it's not made explicit in the u.s constitution Mm -hmm. the language is somewhat vague and undefined in uh, international human rights law. Uh, But I think it's really become much more important in the digital space. I think it's really no surprise that when you look at like the early kind of work people were doing around computers, they concentrated on free expression, free speech, and privacy, because these were the things that were really going to be redefined mm. by technology in the next hundred years. So, uh, I mean, I, that's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, I know. But but I think the nut of it is that um, if you don't fight for privacy in this kind of environment, you just lose it completely. <laughs> 
and yeah. a world without any privacy at all is i think something that that people instinctively realize is isn't a world where you can actually exist as a as a human being yeah i agree and i and that's why i like to ask everybody this question because everyone's got a slightly different take on it i really like hearing you know kind of the angles that that uh, the different guests have on this thing and yeah i i, I have snappy answers to it you know when people <laughs> say like you know what if i've got nothing to hide right. i talk about you know people who do have something that they need to protect and those people are important to society right like you know martin yeah. luther king the founding fathers the united states wherever i go around the world there's somebody that somebody knows who needs to be protected and defended but personally that's kind of my viewpoint on it it's 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 one of those frontiers if you will that you have to defend in a technological world because it's just easy for it to evaporate overnight and I, I always think of like uh, the, Glenn, the Glenn Greenwald TED Talk on this, and he brings up an, uh, an aspect of this that I always thought was compelling, and that is that, you know, for, for society in general to, to kind of grow, you know, we need space to, you know, to, to walk up to the lines on some things and even cross the line sometimes. I mean, you look at, you know, you know inter, interracial marriage wasn't legal for a long time. And right. gay, right. gay marriage wasn't legal for a long time. All these things at one point were illegal, but you know, so at some point we had to like flirt with, you know, illegality until we realized it was wrong. Right. Or, and we wanted to, you know, progress as a society. And so, and, and I, yeah. And I also think that technology sort of blurs the boundaries between what is external and what the face that you have to the rest of society mm -hmm. and what, what is actually you. So we at EFF spend a lot of time thinking about the future because it's often a little bit closer than people expect. And oh, if yeah. you're doing lawsuits and you're trying to do advocacy, you kind of have to think five, 10 years down the line and something not to get weird on you, but like <laughs> something that we spend a lot of time worrying about is so uh, when I'm thinking a thought, right, like I'm thinking a private thought, I think everybody agrees that, you know, there shouldn't be giant mind reading machines mm. at every corner. But these days, you know, part of my process of, of thinking about what I'm doing or anticipating is actually typing it into a computer, right? Mm. Like Google's forget about like, you know, whether Google should be selling data or mining data or whatever. I tell the Google search box things that I wouldn't tell my mm -hmm. partner, right? If I'm worried that like, maybe I'm coming down with some terrible disease, I would do a Google search on mm -hmm. it. And that means Google now knows something that I wouldn't share with anyone. Right. And similarly, as time goes on, uh, we're going to get to the situation where that our personality is going to be kind of the, the line between what's in our heads and what's in our technology is going to increasingly blur. And that means, you know, the, the default rule that what I think in my head is private isn't necessarily going to be the case going forward. And so we have to define this perimeter. And that perimeter, I think, can't be defined by, you know, who is holding that data. Mm. Because, as I said, some of my most private data is now held by third parties and companies. And it also really can't be defined so much by, like, where it is, like, geographically. Because, again, without getting too philosophical about it, what does that even mean? Oh, sure, right? yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the data doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to live, like, near my head for it to be part of my thought process. Yeah, Absolutely. The other kind of quote that I came across recently that I liked was, uh, I think it was, it was from the movie Anon, uh, which was an okay movie, but oh. it was an interesting concept. And 
And at the very end, it was uh, the person was saying, it's not that I have anything to hide. It's just I have nothing I want to show you. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. right. It's it, again, like this is always interesting to kind of challenge the defaults. And definitely, I think one of the things that's so interesting about sort of early technologists and thinkers and creators of the internet was that they were very concerned with privacy one of the very first like conferences about all of these issues was called computers freedom and privacy and i always think that's interesting when people sort of say now oh who could have predicted that there would have been all of these challenges and question marks about the nature of privacy and like anybody who's used computers <laughs> for more than a you know uh, has at some point gone holy crap this is going to change everything in this area well, here's the, here's the the next question, and I I think this is more challenging. But again, I'd love to get different perspectives on this, and that is, is it really necessary to give up some some level of personal privacy in order to be quote unquote more secure? I mean, that that's kind of what we're being told, right? At least in the U.S. by intelligence agencies, and to some extent now the law enforcement agencies at the DOJ, um, the FBI. Right. I mean. Is that a false choice, or is there really a yeah, balance I mean, that needs to be struck? Yeah, I mean, we always cha challenge this because it's such a it's such a strange, like there are so many ways, and everybody knows that we are made more insecure by having our data more freely available, right? That's what a security breach means mm -hmm. <laughs> is when data is 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 released more. There is sort of this suggestion that maybe. Um, we need to compensate every time somebody gets a little bit more privacy by uh, um, that that would make some other part of this big machine um, less able to protect people. But again, I mean, the thing is, is that the, the, the downward slope with technology is not to be more privacy secure, right? The downward slope on technology is for this information to just slosh around. And for all that the, um, the law enforcement says, you know, we're, we're, the, the world is going dark for them, that they're mm. seeing less of what's going on. Uh, our experience, and, you know, I'll be honest, like in our conversations with the people who actually fight crime or, you know, we chat to people who are connected to the NSA, you know, it's not all done in the courts. And, you know, one of the things that we definitely get back is that, that they're awash with data, mm -hmm. right? They have all the metadata in the world. They have the ability, you know, so much more of our lives, of criminals' lives, of anybody's lives is now encoded digitally mm. and sent down lines. Then... It flips the whole thing on its head, I think, that, that, that you say, well, you know, it's not a trade-off. What we need to do is to... Privacy is part of our security. Mm -hmm. I don't feel secure if I don't feel that I can protect my privacy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Phil Zimmerman, who was the guy who created PGP Boy back in the day, I actually had the yeah. honor to interview him at one point, and he likened it to... He actually said it's really the golden age of surveillance because, as you say, there's so much right. metadata and so many you know social graphs and things that we ha that they have access to now that they never had access to before. And he likened it to you've got a 4K screen with a couple dead pixels, <laughs> you right. know, and, the, and they right. don't want the dead that's, pixels. That's but... a great analogy. <laughs> and I mean, I think that, I, and again, you know, I think this sort of sets up this confrontational stance, right? It sets up this thing where the argument has to between be, be between privacy advocates and law enforcement 
or, or government or, you know, people trying to do their job. And, you know, again, one of the conclusions I've come from this sort of thing is that we're not getting the correct resources to folks that are trying to do this kind of thing. If you're in a situation where, as law enforcement, you say, look, we literally can't do our job unless we're allowed to throw away warrants and break down people's doors without uh, a warrant. Like there's something there's something broken somewhere else that we need mm. to fix. And for the for people involved who actually, you know, want to do their job, like I think opening up that conversation and having that conversation about like, well, what is it? You can't do that, right? Because our society is actually built on mm. these principles, but you've you've you know you've you've been able we've been able to hold things together for hundreds of years with those rules in place like what are the things that need to shift elsewhere for you to be able to effectively do what you 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 need to do and the same goes for companies i think as well right like i think that that um as we'll see a lot of the the reaction to the eu's uh, the eu courts uh, approach to data protection is for governments, politicians, lawmakers uh, to go, what can we do to protect the existing business models? Like, what can we do to protect um, companies who are collecting all of mm. this data? And like, I feel like that we can think bigger about this, right? We can go, you know, it turns out that that particular business model was not good for society or, mm. or is impossible in some other ways. How can we build a better system that, that doesn't rely on just strip mining everybody's privacy? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will definitely get to that. Let's. Uh, you mentioned the Constitution, and so let's let's kind of go back and kind of briefly walk through some of the history of privacy in the U.S. and, by contrast, in the in the in the EU and Europe. You know, so you know, you're right. We didn't really have. You know, you could look for it, but there is no explicit right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Uh, though, and I looked this up, there was uh, Judge Randice, a uh, famous right. Supreme Court judge, did have some uh, wrote a seminal paper on uh, on the idea of the right to privacy. Uh, way way back when, uh, but kind of walk us through if you would uh, walk us through like some of the general history, like some of, in like in the seventies we had the Privacy Act, and and then kind of in the parallel Europe was doing the uh, its own kind of data privacy, and and we took different approaches. So maybe just like catch us up to maybe two thousand or so. Like you know walk okay. us through where, yeah. from like seventeen seventies. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, with the condition that like I am I am not a a, a U.S. constitutional lawyer and this is <laughs> nor, not legal advice. Right. Um, nor am I, nor is the audience. You're, so I think you're, you're, good. you're planning to launch a Supreme Court lawsuit. Um, <laughs> but I think one, as I said, sort of like early technologists in the sixties were worried about this like if you look back in the i guess the history books now right um you see a lot of the concerns in the 60s where computers would be used you know not as a liberatory kind of personal computer thing but as a tool of government and companies to oppress people's privacy so there was a lot of thinking going in going on to how to best address that and it was actually um uh, at the very least transatlantic right the 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 thinking that went on was um both in the us and in europe and it went along very similar lines the kind of fork in the path happened a little bit later than that the early ideas of um 
what I guess we call in in, in the EU context now data protection law, mm-hmm. uh, which was, I guess you could think of as privacy law applied to technology um, or digital technology. That was actually kind of developed in the US and in the, in Europe. There was sort of a collective, we need to deal with this now. I think really people always like to kind of imply that there's some sort of big, you know, societal difference between the US and and, and Europe on this. And apart from the fact that there's also the rest of the world to think (laughs) of, um, I don't don't kind of go along with that kind of essentialism. Really, it was just a set of practical, very practical decisions. The European Union at that point was just growing and beginning to feel its feet. And so an obvious place to kind of introduce new laws and thinking about this was at the European Union level Um, and so they were able to sort of pass things that were more about principles that that would then be encoded into laws because Mm. that's definitely how the early European Union kind of worked Um, they weren't sure quite how much power they had to create law but they knew that you know they could create I guess you know in some ways a constitution Mm. whereas in the US it was it was much more scattergun. I think that the the U.S. approach to this kind of legislation was not like let's encode a huge big idea, but let's deal with these problems as they mm-hmm. come up. And so what happened was is you would get what my colleague Li Tian uh, describes as data Valdez, right? Like these huge oil spills of data <laughs> and disasters that would hit the headlines, mm. and then. Um, after the headlines, there, a rule would be passed saying, mm. for instance, you know, you, you can't do this with health right. data. You can't do this with, with uh, actually, there's a whole set of law about video yeah. rentals because there was a big scandal about the data about a, a Supreme Court applicant right? Yeah, uh, having his video rental records from when people use VHS tapes. <laughs> so there's a chunk of law about that. Um, so it was much more patchwork in the U.S. So what this meant was that um, uh, the EU was able to kind of build on these these principles. And as the EU got more force to what it, it, it was doing, and in particular, when the EU sort of transitioned between being kind of really like a free trade alliance into something more like the United States, more like a federal like government. Mm-hmm. They did indeed write the equivalent of, of the Bill of Rights, which is the uh, uh, European Charter of Human Rights. And in that, they put in very explicit language about privacy and about data protection. So I think where things really kind of went off the rails uh, in two different key ways was right around 9-11. Uh, well, huh. at 9-11 for some of this because, because of the Patriot Act and, you know, all the things that that touched off. And then, you know, kind of around the same time is really when the World Wide Web has really kind of taken off. And and I think a lot of you know, the, the dot-com bubble had burst. And so now companies are thinking, you know, we actually have to make money somehow uh, and nobody wants to pay for anything. So they turn to advertising. And then right. to optimize that advertising, they felt that they had to learn about as much about us as possible. Right. right. So, and I think that the, I mean, the thing that we off, I mean, there's lots of things we can talk about, but the thing that we 
really spend a lot of time drill da- drilling down on and trying to expose as a real shift in how things operate is mass surveillance, right? Mm-hmm. The collection of data about a lot of people simultaneously. And that both had a new business advantage. So, you know, fledgling companies like Google were just collecting everything about people and kind of storing it because, hey, you never know when that might come in useful. And it turned out to be useful in things like targeted advertising. And similarly, um, the model at the government level for domestic investigations has always been, you know, this targeted surveillance where you get a warrant and you say, okay, we, uh, we have a really, we have a strong suspicion that this person is up to no good. We're going to go to a, a judge and get a very narrow thing to keep a closer eye on them. And that shifted to, to the part of government practice, which, um, has a little bit more of a free reign, mm. <laughs> um, which is the national security, foreign surveillance, foreign mm-hmm. spying, where uh, for the whole of the Cold War, the general understanding was that, you know, I, I mean, I hate to say this, but like certainly outside of a country, the rules were were off the table right right? for a very long time like spying was that thing you did which was explicitly about breaking somebody's laws if it wasn't yours then it was certainly going to be the country in which you were placing Mm -hmm. your spies and there was just this weird flip around 9-11 where the tools and the approach and the callous disregard for civil liberties that was sort of this tiny part of government practice this spy versus spy espionage environment flipped to become the approach for spying on everybody simultaneously. Right. And it's, and we'll get into this a little bit, I'm sure, but it changed so drastically with the, with the, this big, you know, bugaboo threat, this big boogeyman of terrorism that, you know, that became carte blanche. I mean, as soon as you mentioned that, if we're doing it, we're doing this to protect you and, and, and of course, there were two levels to this, right? There was what they said they were going to do, which was already bad enough, you know, with the right. Patriot Act. And then, and then as we eventually found out with, uh, thanks to Edward Snowden, the things that they were doing well beyond that, that, that most of us only dared believe that they would they would bother doing. Um, but yeah, yeah. And that, that comes back to the whole security versus privacy thing. And I think that, I guess I don't know, because I'm not from the intelligence community, but whether or you not- say. <laughs> you say you are uh, <laughs> right, yes, right, 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 right. That's exactly <laughs> what somebody, a spy, would say, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, what, you know whether or not they, you know, they were actually chomping at the bit for this, or, or you know, and then this was kind of like letting the, the floodgates out. Then, but I mean, it was you know, we had the foreign, you know, the FISA Act, we had the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. I mean, the way it was supposed to right. work is our intelligence agencies were supposed to spy, like you said, no, basically the whole is barred. They could spy outside. The, the borders and then the FBI and the law enforcement agencies and the, had to get warrants and had to follow the constitution. And then things right. got really blurry after nine 11. Right. And you know, I see this as this sort of gr- the great compromise and the problem with the great compromise was that, um, you know, and this was in the United States, at least after Watergate and this concern that um, 
the tools, the external tools of US as, the U.S. as a foreign power, where they were conducting this Cold War surveillance and disruption of other governments, was being turned inward. And so the great agreement was, well, okay, we have rules about protecting U.S. citizens, U.S. people on the U.S. soil, and those rules will apply, but um, it's uh, everybody outside the US it's 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 free mm-hmm. free game and crucially that depended on a sort of weird illusion which is that the assumption was that if you were spying on a foreigner right you were probably spying on them because they were an agent of a foreign power right mm-hmm. they were another spy mm-hmm. um or you know at worst they were a actor of of a power like a politician right mm-hmm. But that's not how the whole thing was encoded. The whole thing was encoded as as soon as you go off U.S. soil, the rules have gone. And that revolved around kind of a technological contingency, which is, at that point, it was very expensive to spy on someone Mm. right it's a lot Mm. of time and a lot of effort there's sort of a one-to-one you visualize the 60s model of some some spook sitting there with with headphones on Mm. listening to a, a phone conversation and then because technology enabled data collection at a huge level you went from okay you can spy on a foreign person to you can spy on everybody right right? and and you know there's far more people outside the united states than there are inside the united states and as people gradually realized you can deduce a lot about what's going on within the united states if you have everybody else's information well and it even got weirder than that i mean so you know so then there was these things like we talk about where data lives there's a lot of these well, first of all, the data pipes these these under you know, these undersea cables that go across the Atlantic and Pacific that carry this data. I mean, I've I've heard of things like, well, ship the data over over to Europe and back, and while it's in Europe, then we can touch it, even though it's on U.S. Right. Or then they've got the five eyes and the nine eyes, and all these you know arrangements between intelligence agencies of of the, of the allies. Right. It's like I can't spy on my own citizens, but you can. <laughs> Right. right, right. So, so yeah, because that became the norm, and norms are really important in this area, right? That that uh, again, so much of this is is off the books when we're talking about national security intelligence. It's classified. There's sort of this gentleman's agreement that the rules are allowed to be broken, and the money comes from a black budget, right? So, so the norm became. Every country is allowed to do what it wants to spy on other people, but it will have some rules about spying its own citizens. And you just sit there going, well, the obvious thing to do here is to trade mm-hmm. in, in in data, right? right? It's easy to move this data around. I When I was in the UK, I lived not very far away from Memwith Hill, which was the big NSA um, surveillance station. They have these big things that look like enormous golf balls. And, you know, the general understanding was is the NSA was conducting surveillance on UK territory, mm. which, of course, would include UK citizens and the UK would be allowed to conduct surveillance in the United States because the, the, the UK, um, UK companies 
um, at that time uh, were, were a big part of the telecom infrastructure around the world. And so it really doesn't take much to go, our existing laws do not protect against this this whole principle being undermined. Right. Well, and then to bring back the corporate aspect of this and the, and the targeted advertising and the data mining done by these multinational companies that really have no bounds. I mean, you think of Facebook and Apple and and Google as American companies, but a lot of them ha- are actually founded in Ireland for tax purposes, and you know they they're they're really not beholden to any particular government other than, you know other than whatever local geographical laws they may have to uh, follow. Well, but, the, you, so now we've got yeah. go ahead. There's two ways to look at it, right? There's like the regulatory arbitrage like <laughs> way of doing it, which is that that these companies if they really want to do something, can kind of reconfigure their corporate nature, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, the Terminator or something, <laughs> to um, to take advantage of where they can do these things. The other part of it, though, in the same way as, you know, I will try and put myself in the head of NSA spies, I will try and put myself in the head of these companies, it's very easy to find themselves in a situation where what they're doing in one country is illegal in another. Mm-hmm. And they're desperately trying to avoid that because they can end up being, they can actually end up being in a situation where they, they never win, right? Because mm-hmm. they need to do something in one country that would be, you know, that would be compulsory in one country, but illegal in another. And if they follow that law, they're breaking the law somewhere else. And if they don't, anyway, so um, uh, the internet and digital technology has melted all of these borders. And it turns out that a lot of our legal and civil liberties, protections and norms kind of depended on those borders being a a genuine kind of speed bump, Mm -hmm. a genuine Mm -hmm. kind of like limit on power. We relied on on oceans and mountains to protect <laughs> our civil liberties. Mm-hmm. And then we worked out ways of, of, of getting, of, of just removing them as, as limitations on what technology can do. Well, the, the other thing is now that these, comp- these companies have amassed all this data and they're selling it to third parties, many of which we'll never know right. um, behind the scenes, these data brokers. Yeah. What that yeah. really allowed the, the governments to do, especially law enforcement and, and, and is to, now they've got access to data that they would never be legally allowed to collect. <laughs> right. But it's just right. sitting there for the taking or for the buying. So so this is this other weird part of it, right? So our laws were kind of about, you know, the the, the spies can't collect this data, right? You know, the, they can't they can't grab this this particular data. And the assumption there was if the spies needed to do something, they would have to do it themselves. It was all written in a time where the machinery of of communication, frankly, digital communication or just any kind of long distance communication was such a complicated, expensive thing that it sat very close to the state. In most countries, the phone companies were state owned. In the United States, even if they were state owned, they mm. you know, AT&T, Marbell was very closely connected to the government. Now you're in the situation where these are all private entities. Now, in a perfect world, those private entities, you know, wouldn't act as agents of the state. 
so there would be some protection there. But the truth is, is that the state can go to these countries. If there's not a law preventing it, the state can go to these companies and just say, would you like to give us this data? Right. right. Um, and you don't even need sort of compulsory laws to mean that the, the, the private sector can cooperate with the government sector to build this this panopticon. Yeah, and as you kind of alluded to, and we you know, companies run into this, uh, especially when you, uh, in China, or maybe perhaps in some of the Middle Eastern um, uh, countries that have much more strict laws about what uh, sorts of ideas and media are allowed to be exchanged and viewed. Uh, and we're already kind of running into the thing where you know they, they call it the Great Firewall of China. It's you know, you know, if you're in China, unless you are lucky enough to get some sort of a VPN that works, you can't get to certain information and then russia to the they actually have been testing uh basically cutting themselves off from the rest of the internet and then you get at companies like apple who got to figure out well what do i do if i i can't if i put a back door in for the chinese government so they can spy on the people because that's what they require for me to operate in their country there's nothing to prevent our own government or any other government from using those same tools yeah i mean talking about firewall and you know it's in the name of the podcast right <laughs> like you know uh, so much of what you have to do is to create a firewall around personal data and also the power of technology so a big fight that we had or we we assisted in um was when the fbi wanted apple to reprogram an iphone to allow them to get the data off it uh, it was connected to the mm. San Bernardino mm. um, terrorist attack. And the government knows that Apple can reprogram iPhones, right? That's what Apple does. Mm. It builds the technology, right? And the government can't see a reason why it shouldn't be able to compel a private actor to comply with what it needs, in order to conduct an investigation. But that's such a huge and unbounded power, as any technologist mm. knows, because as soon as you get to the point where you could say, we, we require the right to rewrite the software on this device. I mean, the device, the hardware itself is, you know, a camera, a microphone, a geo-tracking device, a very powerful processor, yeah. a, um, a an accelerometer, a um an altimeter you know the list mm. goes on this is just a spying machine yeah. that happens not to be running the spying software so in the wrong hands as people always like to say this is a this is a terrifying threat and everybody's hands can potentially become the wrong hands really the only the only hands that you can trust in this setting are your own Right. Like we have to be able to control those devices and have like a veto of fat power over effectively what is used in them. And the only way you can really encode that in law is a very high level constitutional or human right. Right. Like an inalienable ability for you to control what's on that device and just harking back to what we were talking before because that device is kind of an extension of your own personality mm, personality yep. at this point Absolutely. right so okay that lays the groundwork i think yes we've gone up to date deep into the the philosophical background of this but like let's 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 pull out to the modern day yes mm -hmm. 
on that little cliffhanger, we will pick it up again next week, part two, where we'll, we'll come up to date and we'll actually dig in now to the, the meat of the article that he wrote about these two really interesting Max Schrem cases. And we'll talk about Max Schrem's background. It's very, it's very interesting. I will, of course, have a link to the article on the show notes, but we'll talk about it next week. Uh, but I still encourage you to go check out EFF.org. They're doing a lot of great stuff, and we'll talk more about that next time. But uh, they're doing really fantastic work, and I'm so pleased that they've been so generous with allowing me to interview so many of their so many of their fine folks. And the summer's kind of drawing to a close. The kids are sort of going back to school, a lot of them virtually, which is probably for the best. Uh, my two daughters are heading off to college, one for the first time, and uh, you know, kind of sad that she's not going to get the kind of the normal freshman dorm experience but so far that she still will have an experience and certainly it'll be one that she'll be talking about for the rest of her life and let's hope that we can manage to do this in a safe way and get our kids uh, back to school this fall if you haven't already subscribed now would be a good time to do it that way you will definitely not miss part two of this interview or any of the future future episodes and uh, while you're there perhaps maybe you could leave a nice review no further updates on the book i'll let you know when i when, when more comes out about that and stay tuned. I'll definitely be having some sort of contest or giveaway around the book launch. So until next week, as always, everybody, stay home and stay healthy. Keep those masks on when you're out and about. Don't be out and about any more than you absolutely have to. Just stay healthy. We need to get through this. And the more we all stay home, the quicker this will be over. Take care, everybody. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your garbage now.